Well, if you've ever been on a first date, you know that on a first date, you ask questions of the other person, and the other person asks questions of you to determine uh, if there will be a second date and a third date, and maybe uh, enough dates that you'll spend your life with this person. So you might ask, uh, you know, where are you from? How many siblings do you have? What are your hobbies? What are your interests? What are some of your values? You ask all of these questions, and all of them are good questions. Uh, But having been married now for 23 plus years, uh, I think sometimes there are some questions that we should ask that we don't ask. So for example, you might want to ask, are you the sort of person who likes to get everywhere five minutes early or 15 minutes late? Because those two people invariably marry one another. Uh, I would definitely ask, what is your preferred thermostat setting? Is it 60 degrees? Or is it 80 degrees or somewhere in the middle? Uh, You might want to ask some financial questions. Like if somebody gave you $100, how much of it would you save? How much of it would you spend on necessities? How much of it would you spend on decorative throw pillows for your sofa, uh, for your bed? And along those lines, what is the appropriate percentage of surface area to dedicate to decorative throw pillows on your sofa or on your bed versus the percentage dedicated to sitting, which is what sofas are for? Uh, another one you might want to ask about animals. If a stray cat shows up at your door, would you A, call animal control, B, throw rocks at it until it goes away, or C, adopt it into your growing menagerie of animals at your house and put it in your will? Uh, And then last but not least, I think if you're dating somebody every day uh, at about four o'clock, you should ask them, what do you want for dinner? And just see how that conversation plays out. Because you will ask that of one another every day for the rest of your life. Questions are important, right? We ask important questions of people so we can get to know them better. But we we also ask questions of ourselves, right? There are important questions that we want to ask to ourselves so that we can not only know ourselves better, but also understand uh, things like, what is, what is my life really about? What is really important to me? What do I really care about? These, these types of questions, they're, they're important not only in the everyday areas of our lives, like our career or our finances or dating and marriage, but they're also important in, in the spiritual area of our lives. Uh, a lot of us have asked ourselves questions like, uh, is there life after death? And if so, how can I find it? How can I have life after death? Or why is the world as messed up as it is, even though it seems like there's beauty in the world, like we just say, why is the world messed up and can anybody fix that? Is there a God? And if there is a God, how can I know him? These are really important questions. Questions can determine not only how we see ourselves, but also how we think about God, how we think about other people. And the right questions actually can help us determine the course of our future, maybe even our eternity. So several years ago, I was reading John chapter 20, which is one of the main passages in the Bible about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, written by the Apostle John, who was one of Jesus' first followers. And as I was reading John 20, it occurred to me, Jesus was really good at asking the important questions. 
Jesus was really good at asking questions that were eternally significant that challenge us to ask them of ourselves. And so I was reading John 20. I was reading this story about the resurrection. And it all of a sudden popped out to me that there are three questions that Jesus asks in John chapter 20. I want to share those questions with you this morning because I really think if we can get a handle on these three questions, these three questions will help put our lives in their proper perspective. I think if we can understand the answers to these three questions, then a lot of the other questions that we ask about our lives and about death and about heaven and about hell and about God, a lot of those other questions will fall into place. Because here's what we're going to see is that Jesus asks these questions and Jesus himself is the answer to all of our really eternally significant questions. This is what we're going to see this morning as we look at John 20. Every eternal question that you have, that I have, every eternally important question is answered at the empty tomb. Every eternal question is answered at the empty tomb by the reality that Jesus Christ died for our sins, but he didn't stay in the grave. He rose from the dead on the third day. And if he rose from the dead on the third day, that changes everything about how we view our lives. That changes everything about how we view ourselves. Our questions about life after death, our questions about God, our questions about the brokenness of the world, these are all answered at the empty tomb. Every eternal question is answered at the empty tomb. And we're going to see how these three questions this morning will inform all of these important questions that we want to ask. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And I want to say this, as we dive into John 20, it may be you walked in the room with some really significant questions on your own heart and in your own mind. Maybe you, you're here with us every week and you've been here for years. Maybe somebody invited you to be here this morning. Maybe you just decided this is the morning I'm going to go to church because it's Easter and that is the right time to show up at church for the first time. We're glad you're here. But it may be you've walked in with some of these eternal questions on your mind. My prayer is that by the time you walk out, you will at least take a step forward in understanding these questions and growing closer in your relationship with God. If you don't have a relationship with God, my prayer is you'll begin one today and you'll find, as I have found, every eternal question is answered at the empty tomb. That's what we'll see in John chapter 20. So before I get into the specific questions, I wanna read a little bit of John 20 and then I'm gonna give a little bit of background of the passage. So follow with me. If you've got a Bible, you've got it on your phone, John chapter 20, I'm going to start in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. 
So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. So a little bit of background. This is early on Sunday morning. And uh, you'll remember Jesus died late on Friday afternoon. It was typical for one's family and friends to embalm the body, to anoint the body with spices when a person died. But because Jesus died uh, so late on Friday, they didn't have time to finish the job. They started the job, but they didn't have time to finish it. So we learn here and in Mark that Mary Magdalene and some other ladies came very early to the tomb to finish the job of anointing Jesus's body for burial. So they bring some spices and things like that. But here's the deal. It says, when they got there, Mary Magdalene sees that the stone that was in front of the tomb was rolled away. Now, this is really remarkable because uh, this would have been a huge stone, about the size and weight of a Honda Civic. All right, so nobody could roll it away all on their own. Uh, It would have taken a group of people. So Mary uh, assumes the worst, like you and I might. She shows up, uh, the tomb seems to be empty, the stone is rolled away, so she thinks somebody has stolen Jesus' body. So what she does is she goes and she finds some friends. She runs back and she finds Peter and John. John describes himself as the disciple Jesus loved, the other disciple. She finds these two guys, two of Jesus' other early followers, and they begin to run to the tomb to see what's going on. Now, I love this part of the book of John because John says, hey, we're running to the tomb and I just want you to know, I ran faster. I got there first. I've always imagined whenever I meet John in heaven, he will have a little blue ribbon pinned to his chest that he made himself that says, winner of the first and only empty tomb race in history. So John gets there first. He looks in and he sees the linen wrappings that Jesus was wrapped in, but Jesus isn't in them. Then Peter goes inside and he sees the linen wrappings and he sees the face cloth that would have been wrapped around Jesus' head and Jesus' head is not in it but it has been wrapped up and placed neatly back in the tomb. This is when they believe that Jesus must have risen because a grave robber would not take the time, first of all, to unwrap the body but secondly, to fold it up neatly. It's like Jesus is saying, I'm gonna fold this up and leave this tomb better than I found it for the next guy because I don't need it. And so they believe that Jesus is risen. And they go back home. But here's the heartbreaking part of the story. It seems like maybe they forgot to talk to Mary Magdalene on their way out to tell her what they saw. And so Mary is still outside the tomb, unsure what's going on. Look what happens in verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. And so as she wept, she she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. So here's Mary Magdalene and she's standing outside the tomb and she's crying and she's crying. This scene is heartbreaking. It reminds me of uh, those times in my life when I've encountered like a child uh, who was lost from their parents. Some of you have had that experience. 
A couple months ago, in fact, after our service, I walked back into the auditorium and I saw a, a little girl, maybe three or four, and she was, just, she was just weeping. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, my parents are gone and I don't know where they are. They've left me behind. And I said, you know, I'll bet they haven't left you behind. I'll bet they're looking for you like you're looking for them. So I asked her her name. She told me her name. I said, I know your parents. I'll bet they're out here in the foyer. So we began to move toward the foyer. And before we could even get to the door, her mom came running around the corner to find her. But in her little mind in that moment, she had been left. She had been lost. She had been abandoned. So here stands Mary Magdalene outside the tomb, weeping like a child, and she says, they've taken away my Lord, my Savior, my teacher, my Jesus, and I don't know where he is. And John says, now she turns around, and Jesus is standing there, but she doesn't know it's Jesus. And this is where Jesus now asks the first of our three really significant questions that we find in John 20. He says, why are you weeping? He says, woman, why are you weeping? Why are you crying? Now she answers him, doesn't she? She says, hey, if you've carried away, him away, tell me where you've laid him. I will take him away. She had said it earlier when the angels asked her the same question. I'm weeping because they've taken away my Jesus. I don't know where he is. But, but I think Jesus asks this question because he wants to direct Mary's heart to the reason why she's actually crying. I mean, yes, she's crying because she doesn't see the body in the tomb and she thinks it's been stolen. But in a bigger sense, I think Mary Magdalene is crying because Jesus died in the first place. You have to understand, uh, Mary Magdalene, when she met Jesus, there's something we know about Mary. And that is when she first met Jesus, she was possessed by seven demons who just, who just were destroying her life. And what did Jesus do? He cast him out. He set her free to follow him. And so she had invested all of her hope for her life, for peace, for joy in this man, in Jesus, because she came to believe that he was the king, the Messiah, sent from God, who would save not only the nation of Israel and not only the world, but who would save Mary from her sin and her spiritual darkness. And yet he died. On Friday, he died. And so here she is, and she's crying. Jesus says, Mary, why are you crying? Here's why she's crying. Because her hope had been stolen away. Her hope had been stolen away. This was not the future that Mary Magdalene envisioned for her life. This wasn't supposed to happen. Jesus was supposed to reign. He wasn't supposed to die. And so her hope had been stolen away. Why are you weeping, Mary? You're weeping because of the grief that eventually enters into every life that we look ahead and we have hopes and we have dreams and we have desires for the future and we want our futures to be good. And yet at some point, all of us face this loss of hope. Certainly, all of us at some point will face death sooner or later, and it will always come sooner than we would like. All of us face the death of, of loved ones who maybe die sooner than we want them to, and so we mourn the loss of the future we envisioned with that person in our lives. But we also face loss of hope in other ways as well. Some of you in this room, you have faced the loss of, of hope and trust in a marriage 
or in a relationship or a child you've invested your time and energy into that maybe has disappointed you in some way or walked away from you in some way or as a child you've invested hope in parents who weren't all you thought they should be or you've invested hope in financial security only to see it crumble around you. All of us find sooner or later that the hopes we have for our lives are dashed on the rocks of a broken world. I remember uh, several years ago, about 15 years ago, when I first became a pastor at Grace Bible Church. It was in my first couple years as the college pastor at the church. And one morning I walked into my office and seated outside my office, there was a a young woman, a college girl, was sitting outside the office and uh, somebody I recognized. And so uh, I'll call her Julie for now. I said, hi, Julie, are you doing okay? Because her face looked a little bit anxious, a little bit stressed. And uh, she kind of looked down at the ground. She's like, yeah, I'm doing okay. And so, you know, I, I, at that moment, I, I didn't respond with the greatest sensitivity because I was in a hurry. I said, that's great. And I walked into my office and I began to work. And then I sat down and I thought, you know, she didn't actually look okay. Let me just go check on her again. So I walked back out and I said, are you sure that you're okay? You don't need anything. You're here in the morning. You're not normally here. What's going on? And at that point, she just bursts into tears. And so I go, oh, okay, you need to, you need to talk, right? And so I was, I was kind of young. I didn't know exactly what to do. So I'm standing in the hallway. I'm like, there, there, right? It'll be okay. And so I'm like, just let, let's talk for a minute. And so she, she steps into the office. I think one of our other staff members stepped into the office as well. And uh, it turns out that she's crying because yesterday her boyfriend had broken up with her. And she's heartbroken. She's heartbroken because this future that she envisioned for herself wasn't coming to pass. Now, what did she not need from me in that moment? As I, as I thought about it, I was like, what does she need? What does she not need? She does not need me to say something like, hey, cheer up. There's lots of fish in the sea, right? She doesn't need that. She doesn't need me to say, you know, relationships are like buses. You miss this one, another will come by in 10 minutes. It's okay. <laughs> right? She doesn't need that. What does she need? She needed me to acknowledge what we all sooner or later find out that the loss of hope, it hurts. The loss of the future we envisioned, it hurts. That's why Mary's weeping. That's why we're all weeping. We sang about it just a few minutes ago. Do you feel the world is broken? It's broken. We see it every single day. You don't have to read the news for very long. We see the brokenness of the world Everywhere we look, maybe on a battlefield in Ukraine, maybe at an elementary school in Nashville, but the brokenness of the world is everywhere we look. This is why Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul, he says, all of creation is groaning out to be set free from this brokenness. He says, for the creation was subjected to futility, to, to uselessness, to hopelessness, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. What is he saying? He's saying when Adam and Eve sinned, 
When Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they said, we want to go our own way. The very first man and woman, they disobeyed God. They said, we don't want to go God's way. We want to go our own way. And so they disobeyed God. That introduced into the world rebellion against God. That introduced in the world a curse against creation itself. The ground doesn't work like it's supposed to. There are disasters and tragedy and chaos. And we are all in rebellion against God. And creation itself groans out and says, when will we, set, when will we be set free? He goes on, he says, it's not just creation, but it's us, not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. All of us long for freedom from this brokenness. And we see it everywhere. And that's why we weep. And where does it come from? Well, it comes from the rebellion of humanity against God. All of us have sinned. All of us have followed Adam and Eve's footsteps. Psalm 14 says, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. You and I and everybody in creation has turned away from God and we have become a part of why the world is broken. And so Jesus says, Mary, why why are you weeping? He wants her to absorb that. You're weeping because the future you longed for is not the future that is materialized. You're weeping because the world is deeply broken and it's deeply broken because we are alienated from God. That's why we're weeping. And Jesus wants her to understand that and I think us to understand that because as we weep, now we need to cry out for deliverance. We groan for salvation. And so that leads to the next question. Where are we looking for salvation from all of this brokenness and sin in the world? He says, why are you weeping? And then his next words are, who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? Now this, uh, this question is interesting because again, remember Mary is standing right there in the presence of Jesus but she doesn't recognize him. But I think Jesus now wants to redirect her thought process. Mary, for just a second, stop thinking about your tears. Stop thinking about what's broken. And I want to ask you this question. Who are you looking for? Where are you looking for hope? Where are you looking for life? Now, it's really interesting that she doesn't recognize Jesus. This happens a lot when, after Jesus' resurrection that he will appear to people and they don't necessarily recognize him. I think there's a couple reasons for this. One is that sometimes I think Jesus conceals his identity, but I also think sometimes you just don't expect to see your dead friend standing there talking to you. It's out of context. I remember reading a story years ago about uh, George Strait, the legendary country musician. And uh, this journalist was saying he was interviewing George Strait, and so he had gone to this studio on the beach in Florida where George Strait was recording an album. And during a little break, uh, George came outside and he sat down on the beach in a lawn chair. He had a baseball cap on and he was just kind of sitting there taking a break. And as he was taking a break, this older couple walked up the beach toward the studio and they, they looked right at George Strait and they said, excuse me, sir, my husband says that George Strait is recording an album in this studio right here. And this journalist says, he looks up at her and he says, lady, I was just in there and I didn't see him at all. And she goes, all right, and walks on up the beach. 
Why didn't she recognize him? Because that's not where she expected to see him. It was out of context. I think something similar happens here to Mary Magdalene. But I also think Jesus is waiting a moment on identifying himself because he wants her to ponder this. You're weeping, Mary, because of death and grief and the brokenness of this world. But who are you looking for? Who are you really looking for to resolve that problem? And here's the great literary irony is that Mary's looking for hope and it's standing right in front of her. She's looking for life. She's looking for an answer to her weeping and her tears and it's standing right in front of her. Who's she looking for? She's looking for Jesus. And the reality is the one she's looking for The one that she saw die on Friday has now walked out of the tomb and he's standing right in front of her. And I think Jesus is going to help her understand, Mary, if you're looking for hope in life, it is found right here, right next to you in the reality of a risen Savior who died for your sins, who rose from the dead. Because if Jesus is still in the tomb, Mary, then keep crying because you are without hope. But who are you looking for, Mary? You're looking for a savior and he's standing right in front of you. And if he's standing right in front of you, if he really emerged from the tomb, then all your hope, all your joy, all your peace for the future, that can all come rushing back in. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul put it this way, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless. You're still in your sins. Furthermore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. For if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we should be pitied more than anyone. In other words, he says, look, if Jesus is still in the tomb, if this is just a cool story we tell, so we have something to do on Sunday, then it's all a waste of time. This building is a waste of time and money. You getting up in the morning on Sunday to come here on Easter is a waste of your time. Reading the scriptures is a waste of our time. It's just a parable, a fairy tale, something that didn't happen. If Jesus is still in the tomb, our hope is gone. We're going to die. We're going to perish. Our names will be forgotten. There is nothing to look forward to for eternity. But Paul goes on and he says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies, all his enemies, death, hell, Satan, under his feet. The last enemy to be eliminated is death. One day, Jesus Christ will take death itself and cast it into the lake of fire where it will no more trouble or plague the people of God. And so Jesus says, Mary, who are you looking for? You're looking for a savior. And Paul would say to us, if Christ has been raised and he has been raised, you know what that means? Our lives are no longer hopeless, but filled with eternal hope. If Christ has been raised and we believe that he has been raised, then that means death cannot destroy us because Jesus has destroyed death. If Christ has been raised and we believe that he has been raised, then all of our reasons for weeping and crying will give way to eternal, perfect, enduring joy with Jesus forever. Has Christ been raised? He has been raised. And Jesus says, Mary, he's standing right in front of you. And so Mary says, look, if you've put him somewhere, tell me where you put him and I'll go get him. And he looks at her 
He says, Mary. And she turns to him, and now she recognizes. And she says, Rabboni, this familiar, close term for my teacher, my Jesus, it's you. And Mary recognizes in this moment, all her hopes will be fulfilled. Her trust in Jesus was not misplaced. The one who delivered her from seven demons will deliver her from death. Who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? Where do you place your hope for today and for tomorrow? If you place your hope in in a human relationship, as great as it may be, it will eventually let you down in a small way or a big way. Place your hope in your money, it will eventually fail you. Place your hope in your health, one day it's going to fail you. Heaven knows you place your hope in the government, it will definitely fail you. Whether you trust in this president or the last one or the next one or the next one after that. Who are you looking for? The one that we are looking for, the one we really need, is the Savior who rose from the dead to defeat sin and death and hell on our behalf. What did Jesus do at the cross? He took on himself all of our sins. And all of the consequences of the world's brokenness, all of the death, because Jesus is an infinite sacrifice for our sin, fully God and fully man. He stands in our place. What did he do on Sunday morning? He rose from the dead to demonstrate that his offering was accepted by the Father and to demonstrate that once and for all, he had achieved victory over death so that everybody who knows Jesus Christ can know that you have victory over death and over sin and over hell. So why are you weeping? Well, because the world isn't how it's supposed to be. But who are you looking for? The one who defeated all of our sin and death and who will one day fix the world to be what it's supposed to be. And so that leads to this last question that we see in John 20, which is simply this, have you believed? Let me, let me explain what happens next. So Mary Magdalene, she goes and she tells the other disciples that, that, that she's seen Jesus alive. And we know from the other gospel stories that nobody believed her. Right? None of the other disciples, they're like, it's, Luke 24 says, it sounds like nonsense to them, which, which kind of makes sense. They, they hear this, I saw our dead teacher alive, and they go, that's nonsense. So that very night, Sunday evening, all the disciples are locked up together. And look at verse 19, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, so they're hiding out, they've closed the door, they've locked the door, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. Now, Jesus likes to do this. If you read the resurrection stories in both Luke and in John, Jesus will just show up. So people are kind of hiding out. The disciples are hiding out. And he'll just suddenly show up behind a locked door and go, peace be with you. Right? And everybody's like, ah! They freak out. They're terrified. He does it several times. And I've always thought, this is, this is a little bit maybe of Jesus' sense of humor. I can do this. Peace be with you. And he shows up in their midst. And they realize he's alive. 
They touch his hands and his feet and his side. He shows it to them. He commissions them. He says, now you're going to represent my interest. You're going to represent my character on the earth. You're going to speak on my behalf. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit who I will send to empower you to do what I'm asking you to do. So they have this wonderful uh, vision of the resurrected Jesus. He's there in their midst. But here's the problem. There is one guy who missed the meeting. And you know, you've heard the story. His name is Thomas. And I've always imagined for the rest of his life, Thomas, every time there's a meeting, he's like, I'm getting to this one on time. Because the one time he misses, Jesus shows up. And so watch what happens as you go through the rest of this chapter. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and here he does it again, and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, and here's the third question, because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. He says, Thomas, you you believed because you've seen me alive from the dead, but you know there's gonna be people who don't see me in the flesh. And they will believe on the basis of the testimony of the eyewitnesses like Thomas and all of those disciples who saw Jesus resurrected. You have to remember, in the first century, of course, there were no cameras, there were no cell phones. In this day and age, if something extraordinary happens to you, you take a picture, you take a selfie, you see a celebrity, you take a selfie with them, so everybody will know that it actually happened. If it didn't, if you don't take a picture, people are like, I'm not sure that happened. So, case in point, true story, several years ago, my wife and I were at the movie theater, and we were leaving the movie theater, and as we were leaving, right past us walks Chuck Norris. And so, and so we're like, wait, 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 that's Chuck Norris. But before we could even get our phones out or our cameras out, like we turned again and he was gone. He had vanished, right? Classic Chuck Norris. <laughs> now, you, you can believe me, you cannot believe me. I don't have proof. You've got to take my word for it that it actually happened. Now, on the other hand, uh, about a year ago, my kids were at McAllister's, and they happened to run into one of their heroes, um, the uh, kicker for a and who kicked the final field goal against Alabama a couple years ago, Seth Small, right? So they ran into him, and they got a picture so we can prove that they saw him. That's what we do in this day and age, but they couldn't do that. And so Thomas doesn't believe the word of his fellow disciples, but Jesus says, There are going to be people coming after you guys who will have to believe on the basis of the eyewitness testimony. And so I I think John here, as he writes this down, he would ask us this question, have you believed? Because John wants us to understand this really happened. Jesus really came out of the tomb. And they wrote down 
how it happened. This massive stone was rolled away. The, the grave clothes were left lying in place. They saw him. It wasn't just one person who had been taking some questionable substances. It was many people over a period of 40 days. Acts 1 tells us over 40 days, Jesus appeared to them. Again and again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that at one point Jesus appeared to 500 people all at one time. And he says, most of those folks are still around. They're still alive. Go ask them if you doubt the story. Over and over and over and over again, they say, we saw him, we talked to him, we know that he's alive. At no point did any of the authorities simply go produce the body, right? If they're like, hey, this is just a story, it's not really true, stop worshiping this guy. All they had to do was go back to the tomb and pull out the body and say, see, we told you. That never happened. And John says, I want you to understand, this really happened. And if it really happened, then the most important question you can ask yourself, the most eternally significant question that we can ask ourselves, have you believed? Have you believed that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? And if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we have hope, we have eternal life, we have joy. And we have life not just one day in heaven, but we have an abundance of life now because our questions about the meaning and the purpose of our lives, those questions are answered at the empty tomb because if we know the God who made us, then we can begin to understand why we were made and how we can live and the things that we can do to walk with him, to know him better, to represent him. And so life, eternal and abundant life now. That's why Jesus says it this way in John 10. The thief, that is Satan. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. In other words, the thief, Satan, came into this world, deceived the first man and woman into believing that God's way was not the best way. And after that point, we all fell into sin, one by one by one by one. So we all have inherited their destruction and we all have contributed to the destruction of the world. And he said, the thief came into the world to steal, to kill and destroy. But I, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's why Jesus came. And so John goes on in verses 30 to 31, and he says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. He says, I wrote this so you can know him, so you can have life forever and ever and ever. Why do we weep? Because the world is broken because of our sin and everyone's sin. Who are we looking for? A savior who will set us free and give us life again like it was meant to be. So the most important question, have you believed? Every eternally significant question is answered at the empty tomb and answered by Jesus himself. Jesus is the answer for people who want hope and life. So, so here's what I want to do as we close. We're going to pray 
in just a moment. And I know that uh, many of you in this room, maybe most of you in this room, you say, I, I do believe, I have believed in Jesus Christ. And if that is you, then in a, in a minute, we're gonna celebrate, we're gonna rejoice because of the empty tomb, that this isn't just a story, but it is a historical reality. But, but there also are probably some people in the room today that you came because it's Easter, you came because you were invited, and you're not sure if you know Jesus. You're not sure, or maybe you know that you don't have eternal life. But maybe as you hear about the resurrection of Jesus, the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart to say today is the day to believe in Jesus and to settle in your heart and mind that you have eternal life rather than eternal separation from God, that you want to have that hope of knowing God rather than the hopelessness that comes from not knowing what the future holds. If that is you, to trust in Jesus Christ, you don't have to do anything. Jesus did all the work. All you and I have to do is accept what Jesus did. As John said, to believe in what Jesus did, to say, I believe it's true. I believe he died for my sins. I believe he rose from the dead so I can have eternal life. I'm gonna give you a moment to take a moment before the Lord in a second, if that is you this morning. I'm gonna offer a, a prayer that you can pray to thank God for what he did. This prayer doesn't save you. What saves you is Jesus and trusting in him. But this prayer can help you to solidify some of these thoughts in your heart and mind before Jesus. But the question that we all have to ask and answer, have I believed? Do I believe? Am I in Jesus Christ? Where is my hope found? Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful. We're thankful for your word. We are thankful for your spirit. We are thankful that today we celebrate a real historical reality that your son, Jesus Christ, died in our place. He took the punishment that we had earned, our death, our separation from you. And then he rose from the dead in victory. We thank you that, that you offer us life in Jesus Christ. Now, as I said, there may be, be some of you in this room that you're ready to trust in Jesus Christ this morning. And if that is you, know that if you've believed in him in your heart, you already are saved. But, but a prayer like this can help solidify that in your mind and heart. So you can just say this with me in the quietness of your heart. You can say it out loud if you want to. But just something like this, you say, God, I confess that I am a sinner. I, I've disobeyed you. I'm a part of the reason the world is broken because I wanted my own way instead of your way. But I thank you, God, that Jesus Christ died to take the death that I deserve. He died in my place and he rose from the dead. I believe that. So Father, I trust in Jesus alone to forgive me of all my sins and to give me eternal life. And maybe you, you prayed that for the first time this morning. And maybe you still have some questions. I wanna do a couple of things quickly. As, as we're still praying and most of us have our eyes closed, if you did pray that for the first time this morning, I'm just gonna look up for a moment. Others aren't looking at you, judging you, but if you would, just, just let me know so I know that you're here. You can raise your hand up. Uh, you can give me a little wave, something along those lines, and just let me know that you trusted in Jesus. 
So for those of you who trusted Jesus this morning, you can know that you have eternal life. Uh, there's gonna be a few people down front right after the service, uh, and, and I'll be here as well. I would encourage you to come talk with one of us so we can just connect with you, know who you are, and follow up to give you some resources as you seek to walk with Jesus and to know him in deeper ways. We wanna help you along that journey. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you that because of him, we have eternal life. Father, we praise you for that. Lord, we, we thank you that, that we are in this room today to worship you. And so we pray you would turn our hearts increasingly toward Jesus Christ this morning, his death for our sins and his resurrection on our behalf. In Jesus' name. Amen.